This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on washing and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Greetings, uh, not from the near frontier, unfortunately, this week, but greetings. Welcome to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. I am your host, Cam Edwards. I am uh, up in the northern Virginia area right now after spending a few days in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania for the Great American Outdoor Show. As a matter of fact, I'll be uh, heading back there uh, for a, a couple of more days. So I'm on this extended road trip. I haven't been uh, on the 40 acres in quite a few days, and it's uh, going to be quite a few more before I get back. So I'm in the midst of uh, feeling homesick and missing my family and uh, missing everybody. But uh, it has been an eventful time on the uh, 40 acres. I'll tell you that we have uh, we've lost a couple of animals. We've uh, added a couple more uh, as uh, uh, one of our goats gave birth a little early, as a matter of fact. Uh, Franny, uh, it, this is the third time that Franny has given birth. And she is a dwarf Nigerian goat. Uh, and normally, they're, they're pretty small. Normally, they have one, maybe two goats. Franny had four uh, the other day. Two of them, unfortunately, uh, were stillborn, didn't make it uh, out of the sack. Uh, uh, two more survived. Um, one of them is not doing real well. I think all of these were born about a month ahead of time uh, because Franny, like I said, is a small goat. Uh, and these, uh, these kids were really tiny, but uh, one of them... Uh, just didn't, according to Missy, e, doesn't really have any, uh, uh, you know, the ability to, to even lift up her head. She's not uh, able to latch on to mom. And so I, I, I don't know that she's going to make it, uh, unfortunately. But uh, we do still have more goats that will be uh, giving birth, hopefully not to four. Uh, hopefully they'll be able to carry them to term. Uh, we lost a couple of chickens this week on the farm, too. Uh, not quite sure what happened since I wasn't around, but Missy e went into the coop. Uh, a couple days ago, and uh, one of the uh, chickens, one of the hens, the last of our original uh, Buff Orpington hens, had been killed in the coop. This is the first time we've ever seen uh, anything like that inside the coop. Uh, and a, another chicken, uh, Miss E thought, was uh, only slightly wounded, apparently uh, wounded a little bit more uh, than uh, what was visible, in the, and, and she uh, ended up dying as well. So we lost two chickens this week. Uh, to something. Now, Miss E thinks that uh, what happened was uh, there was a uh, security failure, that the, uh, the the coop actually was not closed up for the night. Something got in and uh, attacked these two chickens. So 
that's one of those awful moments where, you know, you, you think, okay, could I have done something different? And as it turns out, yeah, probably, <laughs> probably could have done something different to, uh, to prevent that from happening. So uh, as a result, the uh, locks are being double checked every night before we uh, go in. If you know, if you, some of the latches, like if it's a raccoon, the, the, the raccoons are pretty darn smart and they can uh, take some of the uh, the simple latches and uh, and open them up. So we do have now the latch that as long as it's latched, uh, everything should be uh, secure and hopefully we won't have any more of these problems. We're also going to be getting a couple of uh, more chickens from uh, one of our friends here before long. But uh, it has been apparently a very eventful week uh, while I have been away from the 40 acres. Thankfully, they haven't had any snow. Uh, so nobody's been trapped in the house. That's that's a good thing. Uh, school has been uh, ongoing, so Missy hasn't had to try to uh, amuse and entertain uh, snowbound kids. Uh, the dogs are okay. Every, everything else seems to be fine, except for uh, uh, the uh, the attack on the chickens and then uh, Franny giving birth again about a month ahead of time. We really were expecting late February, early March for the uh, the first goats. Uh, so now we're we're in our window here. We've got uh, one more goat that sh- should go sometime between now and early March, and then we've got uh, two more uh, that uh, they should be having their kids early to uh, to mid March. Uh, although you know, again, now I'm kind of confused about the uh, calendar. So we're on goat watch now, basically uh, every day uh, until uh, all of our. Uh, goats have had their kids, and it was supposed to be really, really cold. Probably the coldest, uh, the temperatures of the winter so far this weekend. Uh, so we've got them. They're not in their normal uh, outside setup uh, where, you know, they, they live in their little uh, igloo dog houses, and they've got plenty of room to run around. We have a, it's a, we use it as a birthing shed when it comes time. Uh, and there's plenty of straw in there. It's, it's out of the elements. There, uh, it's a lot warmer than uh, where they would normally be. So that's where the uh, the pregnant goats will be living this weekend. Uh, in case they do have kids, we want to make sure that the uh, the babies don't freeze to death. The goats have the, uh, at least at our place, they have the tendency to uh, to give birth in the middle of the night when uh, when we're not around. So we want to make sure that uh, uh, mom has the ability to uh, to take care of those kids uh, for a couple of hours. We we do check. Uh, on the goats when they're in the uh, the birthing shed on a regular basis, but a just like a watched pot never boils, apparently a watched goat uh, never actually gives birth. So they they will inevitably do this when we're not around, and uh, hopefully they won't do this. Uh, they won't have any, we won't have any more births until I actually uh, am around. I've, this has been one of those weeks where I feel like as soon as I left, things started happening on the farm, and I'm not there. I feel very disconnected this week from. All of the events that are taking place on the uh, the forty acres. So I'm looking forward to uh, to getting back home. Uh, honestly, uh, here in a few days, and I do have a few more days to go. Although I will say it has been a uh, a really fun week in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I was up there for the NRA's Great American Outdoor Show. Uh, we'll be talking about that uh, later on in the program. But if you've never been there uh, to to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I actually can't recommend. Uh, Harrisburg in February. <laughs> if it weren't for the Great American Outdoor Show, the Great American Outdoor Show makes it worth it. Otherwise, I'm not sure why anybody would want to go to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 
in February. Seems like it'd be a, a neat time to explore maybe in the summer months when it's a little bit warmer. You've got the, uh, if you're a minor league baseball fan, you've got the Harrisburg Senators, which uh, is the AA team uh, for the Washington Nationals. They've got a pretty cool uh, ballpark that's actually on an island in the middle of the Susquehanna River. So it's a pretty neat place to watch a, a baseball game. Uh, unfortunately, they, they seem to have a mayor who uh, absolutely despises the NRA, hates history, uh, and seems to be doing his damnedest to uh, piss off everybody associated with the Great American Outdoor Show to his detriment. Uh, and we'll talk about this as well, because this was one of the issues that popped up while I was in Harrisburg, uh, a, uh, an exhibit at the National Civil War Museum located there in Harrisburg. Uh, apparently, the mayor of Harrisburg doesn't like the museum, doesn't think that we should be uh, studying the Civil War, uh, because you can't have a museum uh, that, that uh, is there to present information. No, no, no. Apparently, a museum must celebrate stuff. So uh, if we have the National Civil War Museum, uh, then that's just celebrating things that, uh, that we shouldn't be celebrating, including the, the Confederacy and uh, just, just weird stuff. I, I, I'm always amazed when I see the uh, the snowflakes on campus freak out over uh, a word that was used or uh, uh, say that, uh, you know, this time period in history, uh, we need to tear down these monuments, we need to take down these things, put them in a museum, right? That's what they always say. It's not appropriate to have these Confederate monuments or these uh, Confederate flags uh, out on display, you know, hanging above the uh, the Capitol or on the uh, streets of New Orleans where they're taking down these monuments. Where do we go? Where, where, do we, where should we put them? We should put them in museums. That's what they always say. And now you have the mayor of Harrisburg protesting a museum because of what it has on display. There is no pleasing and no stopping this attitude of uh, uh, we, we don't want you to, uh, to think about these things or talk about these things or uh, feel this way. Uh, they can say we just it's fine if you feel this way or talk about these things or, or study these things over here. But it's not. It's really not. The real objection is we don't want you doing this anywhere, right? We've seen this with the anti-gun movement, actually, with uh, uh, Moms Demand Action. A couple of years ago, when they started their campaign to uh, to, to ban concealed carry in uh, various businesses, what did they say? What was their argument? We're not opposed to, uh, to people carrying uh, uh, concealed firearms. We just don't know why they need them here in Starbucks or here in Target or here uh, at Sonic. But we don't have a problem with people carrying. We just don't think you should be carrying them here or here on a college campus or here at the grocery store or here at the mall or really anywhere people are legally and lawfully carrying a firearm. We don't want you to do that. This attempt uh, to, uh, to, to seem reasonable ultimately ends up in an attempt to simply uh, chill speech or behavior uh, to uh, to try to ban the things that uh, people don't like. They're, it's not about restricting uh, uh, the the ability to uh, to read or study or carry. Uh, no, it, at the end of the day, it's about ending the ability to do those things for the uh, the scolds out there. So we'll be talking about that uh, here on the Forty Acres in a Fool this week. Uh, we've got some uh, email from you around the country. Uh, Trent checking in with some more uh, talk about fares. So we'll get to that as well. We're going to take a, a quick time out right now. When we come back, we'll uh, delve into the great American outdoor show in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So stick around. There's more Forty Acres in a Fool coming up right after this. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. 
When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. Cam Edwards, your host and uh, you know, my job at uh, NRA News Cam and Company, uh, I have an opportunity to meet a lot of awesome people and go to some really cool places. And I was up in Harrisburg at the Great American Outdoor Show uh, earlier this week, and uh, we'll be actually back up there for uh, Valentine's Day weekend as well. And while I was there, I was talking with uh, Wayne Motts, who is the CEO of the National Civil War Museum, which is located there in Harrisburg. Uh, and the, uh, the NRA, every year that they uh, put on the Great American Outdoor Show in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, one of the things that they do is they donate about $50,000 to the community. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was a brand new police cruiser for the uh, Harrisburg Police Department. Uh, this year, uh, about half of the money, about $25,000, went to the National Civil War Museum uh, in the form of a grant for an uh, 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 exhibit called uh, Guns and Lace. Uh, and then uh, uh, $25,000 went to uh, various uh, youth groups, youth shooting groups around the area. Well, the mayor of Harrisburg didn't like this too much. Uh, Eric Papenfuse, I think is uh, his name. Uh, he was upset about this. He thought that the uh, the money should be going to the city of Harrisburg because uh, one year it, it went to the city of Harrisburg and that police cruiser. He thinks that that should be happening all the time. Uh, so he uh, he demanded uh, that the NRA basically pay the city of Harrisburg fifty thousand uh, dollars, and the NRA said, "No, we're not going to do that. That's not the agreement that we made when we decided to uh, to take over running this show. Uh, we said that we would give fifty thousand dollars to the community. We can't really can't actually just you know hand over fifty thousand dollars to the uh, city of Harrisburg uh, in return for putting on this program. That would be illegal. Um, but the mayor really, really wants that money, and he really, really doesn't like the NRA. He actually uh, uh, forbade." Uh, Harrisburg police officers from working the Great American Outdoor Show as security because he said they weren't being paid enough and he wanted them to be paid $50 an hour, uh, which is far above the going rate in uh, even bigger cities. Now, the NRA had actually offered a uh, a raise to these uh, officers who were working off duty on their own time. Uh, The mayor uh, said no, wasn't good enough. Uh, and simply said, uh, if you're a Harrisburg police officer, you cannot work security for the show. Now, I don't know who he thought he was going to hurt by that. I don't know if he really thought he was going to hurt the National Rifle. He said, let's see them try to get security now. Well, it really wasn't a, a problem to get additional security. Uh, Dauphin County officers are there. There are something like 30 law enforcement uh, jurisdictions uh, around the Harrisburg area. 
a lot of these officers are uh, uh, more than happy to have the opportunity to work this uh, a show and to uh, put a little extra money in their pocket. So the uh, the 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 anti supposedly the anti NRA move uh, by the mayor of Harrisburg ended up backfiring on him. Uh, there's plenty of security there, the Great American Outdoor Show, but there are a lot of ticked off Harrisburg officers who, because of the actions of their mayor, have been shut out now uh, for, for from working security, which means that the money that they count on and depend on for things like, you know, Christmas presents, putting their kids through school, family vacations, things of that nature, is gone. They don't have an opportunity to get it now. And so the Fraternal Order of Police in Harrisburg actually filed a grievance uh, against the mayor. Uh, uh, talking about the uh, the loss of income uh, that these officers are now going to have because of the mayor's actions. Well, apparently the mayor is, is doubling down here on this because I mentioned that uh, that exhibit at the National Civil War Museum. Uh, the mayor, as well as uh, uh, about a dozen protesters, according to uh, PinLive.com, so you had about 12 people out there uh, on Wednesday night protesting the uh, Guns and Lace exhibit there at the uh, Great American Outdoor Show. Why? Uh, according to Penn Live, the exhibit featured a gun owned by William Quantrill during the Civil War, among other historical guns from gun manufacturers that are still in operation today. The exhibit also featured several special gowns from the Civil War era. The dozen protesters say that Quantrill's gun was part of a, quote, heritage of hate, and that the gun should only be displayed with proper context about Quantrill. The protesters say they thought the gun's history was simplified and overlooked in favor of a pro-gun exhibit underwritten by a $25,000 grant by the NRA. Keith Benz, one of the uh, 12 who showed up holding a sign at the protest, said, I don't think the glorification of the heritage of the Confederacy does anybody any good. We are supposed to all be brothers and sisters. Let's act like we're brothers and sisters. Why constantly remind people of color? It's just wrong. Benz, according to Penn Live, brought a sign that compared Quantrill to Dylan Roof, who was accused of killing nine churchgoers in Charleston last year. Another protester sign simply said, an affront to decency. Now, Quantrill uh, was one of the uh, Confederate uh, uh, guerrilla uh, warriors, basically, in the uh, Civil War, operating in, uh, in and out of uh, Missouri and in Kansas. If you don't know your Civil War history... You might think that nothing really big happened in Kansas and Missouri. That was sort of the frontier at the time. There weren't any huge major battles. You didn't have uh, a, a Gettysburg or an Antietam uh, or a Spotsylvania uh, Courthouse or the Wilderness or uh, Chancellorville. There were no major battles. What there was was a constant uh, state of uncertainty and fear. You know, we talk about the Civil War being brother against brother and family against family. That was definitely the case in Missouri and in Kansas, where you had uh, low-scale, almost gang warfare taking place, not just during the Civil War, but for years beforehand and for years afterwards. In the 1850s, Kansas was known as Bleeding Kansas because of the uh, constant attacks by uh, slave owners and abolitionists against one another in the state as they fought, literally fought, uh, to uh, to make the state either a slave state or a free state. Uh, Quantrill, in 1863, uh, led a raid on Lawrence, Kansas. About 180 civilians were, were killed uh, in that raid. So if you want to compare him to uh, Dylan Roof, you could actually make the case that, no, Quantrill was a, a lot worse. Uh, this was a, a state of war, uh, it should be noted, not a uh, an act of a civilian. Uh, but, uh, again, it was a brutal act. 
in a brutal place at a brutal time in American history. That's the context. Uh, I don't think that there's anybody out there uh, celebrating the uh, the actions of uh, William Quantrill and uh, uh, his raiders killing 180 people. But when you put it into the context of over 600,000 American casualties over a four-year period, when you put it in the context of a single battle in which uh, you know it, it was not unheard of to have 20,000 casualties, and then two weeks later another battle with 20,000 casualties, uh, it's very hard for us to understand. It's very, very difficult for us today to actually uh, understand what it was like to live in this country during that time period. And I'll be really honest with you. There's no way that a little paragraph uh, on a, a piece of paper underneath a firearm in any museum is going to uh, provide that, that, uh, that understanding for the person standing in front of it. It's just not. I'll give you another quote here. Um, Alan Kennedy Schaefer, a local attorney and Harrisburg school board member, showed up in the bitter temperatures Wednesday night to support the effort, the protest. Uh, he noted that the country has made progress recently by taking down Confederate flags, re- recognizing that they can be hurtful. He said, I think there needs to be a distinction between gawking at a weapon of hate and exploring the context so we can all learn. It sounds like they don't want either. It sounds like they want... Perhaps this is a museum to close down. And apparently the mayor has had issues with the National Civil War Museum in the past. Like, he's not a fan of the museum in Harrisburg, which seems like a weird thing for the mayor of Harrisburg to be opposed to a museum uh, there in your town. But whatever. Uh, I think there needs to be a distinction between gawking at a weapon of hate and exploring the context so that we can all learn. You can't learn if you don't go inside. Uh, Wayne Motts, by the way, the uh, director and CEO of the uh, National Civil War Museum, says, look, many items held and displayed here have a violent history. It's a Civil War Museum. Of course they do. He said that's no different than a lot of other museums. Take, for example, the Derringer, which John Wilkes Booth used to assassinate President Lincoln. It's held by the National Park Service. It is displayed at Ford's Theater. Now, do you have pages and pages of context uh, with that uh, Derringer that's displayed there, or do you have a little placard that says this is the Derringer used to kill Abraham Lincoln? You don't get into Abraham Lincoln. You don't get into John Wilkes Booth. You don't get into uh, why he decided to assassinate Lincoln. You don't get into uh, the co-conspirators uh, who uh, uh, died uh, after uh, Lincoln's assassination. You don't get into uh, how Lincoln's assassination impacted Reconstruction. None of that. You get a placard. Because a museum can only do so much. What a museum is, is supposed to do, if we're lucky, it's supposed to make you curious about things that you've seen so that you go and learn more about those things on your own, right? We took our kids to, uh, to Monticello not long ago. Um, we walked through the visitor center. There is a, a museum there. We walked through Monticello itself, which is full of uh, original furniture, and paintings and uh, doodads and, you know, things large and small uh, that uh, were original to, uh, to, to the home and to Jefferson uh, when he was alive. And there are, I got to tell you, there aren't any placards or any signs on any of this stuff. All of it is presented without context, uh, at least in the house itself. If you're getting a tour, you get the context or a little bit of the context uh, from the, uh, the docent who is conducting the tour. But that's it. You walk out of that house, if you are a curious person, you walk out with a lot of questions about Jefferson. 
You walk out of that house with a lot of questions about uh, the family who lived there, about the slaves who lived there, about what was li- what, about what life was like for uh, each group of people uh, who lived under that same roof there at uh, Monticello. You walk out with a lot of questions that aren't going to be addressed in an hour uh, long tour walking around. But hopefully, again, you then look to answer those questions on your own. Right. The truth is, history is never as simple as we want to make it. I mean, just look at our own uh, news today and our own culture. Um, You know, maybe 100 years from now, it'll be uh, this will be watered down and simplified. And all of these stories and all of the personalities and all of the individuals who are shaping history right now, uh, it'll be boiled down to, well, Barack Obama was elected, uh, spent eight years in office, and then there was another election. And and who knows who's going to be elected after that? Uh, We will miss or our descendants will miss a a great deal of context uh, and uh, complexity. That, uh, that that we are living through right now, just as we miss a lot of the complexity from that era, from the Civil War era. And and if you want to, uh, again, get some understanding of that complexity, you're going to have to go to more than one museum. You're going to have to do more than go to uh, the uh, the National Civil War Museum and the uh, Museum of American History at the uh, Smithsonian, uh, and you're going to have to do more than go to the uh, Museum of the Confederacy outside of Appomattox, Virginia. You're going to have to do more than uh, visit Civil War battlefields. You're going to have to open up a lot of books from a lot of different points of view. You're going to have to try to read uh, firsthand sources from uh, journalists and soldiers and politicians on both sides. Diaries from uh, civilians that were kept uh, during that time period. And even then, you're not going to get the full picture. You're just not. But it strikes me as so odd. It strikes me as absurd to say that what we need to do is ban uh, objects from history because we don't like who owned them. Uh, We don't like uh, the other side that they were used for. How can, again, how can you get that context, the real historic context, uh, if uh, parts of our history are banned? Can you imagine like the National D-Day Museum in New Orleans uh, not referencing, not being able to mention uh, the uh, the Nazis that the Allies fought on D-Day? Because uh, to include anything from the Nazis would be to uh, uh, to, uh, to celebrate a heritage of hate. I mean, that's absurd. You could make that same argument against the National Holocaust Museum, right? Because we don't want to uh, do anything that could be seen uh, or or, or any individual could possibly uh, use this display uh, for another purpose. Right? If a neo-Nazi visited the Holocaust Museum, why, why, why he might walk out happy, she might walk out happy. We wouldn't say shut down the museum, would we? Of course not. That's absurd. And yet, that's what we have today. We have, uh, again, a relatively small group, about 12 protesters. Uh, by contrast, I don't know how many people are actually going to go through the uh, National Civil War Museum during the uh, time that the display is and the exhibit is uh, is open, but I think it's going to be more than 12. I do know at the uh, Great American Outdoor Show, there are going to be about 200,000 attendees. I haven't seen any protesters, by the way, of the Great American Outdoor Show. I've seen a lot of happy faces inside. But this uh, this urge to destroy our history, to rewrite our history, 
uh, to try to uh, uh, create a, uh, an image that is uh, in a history that is not upsetting to anybody. It's going to fail. And it's a ridiculous idea on the face of it. We need to learn more of our history. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. And you don't do that by uh, declaring uh, some of our history to be off limits. You just don't. All right, we're going to take a, a quick time out. We have much more 40 Acres and a Fool coming up right after this. So stick around. We'll be right back with more. This is 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Kim Jong-un has invented an alcohol where there's no hangover. Booze that won't get you hungover? That's right. Drink all you want, buddy. There's no hangover. We had a president who's uh, worried about gun control, stuff like this. Syrian refugees possibly being terrorists. And Kim Jong-un has prioritized an alcohol that will not leave you with a terrible hangover. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards returns now on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. Cam Edwards, your host. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. This week uh, on Twitter, Kevin Williamson of National Review uh, made a comment about uh, small-scale agriculture not really working uh, as far as an industry goes, uh, his assertion, his contention was that uh, most small scale farmers are uh, glorified gardeners uh, or they are uh, part of the uh, aristocratic class uh, who uh, who wants to, uh, to to feel better about what it is that they're doing. And so they're sort of Marie Antoinette uh, pretending uh, at farming, but, uh, but there aren't really. Uh, any successful small-scale farming operations, or if there are, they are few and far between. Uh, right alongside uh, Kevin Williamson's comments about this, I saw a, a story. It was actually from Modern Farmer, and it was 2015, uh, August of 2015. But I've seen this be uh, tweeted out uh, by a couple of different uh, sources uh, this week on planned agricultural communities. Uh, Jay Feldman wrote this piece back in August where utopia meets suburbia. Uh, and it's 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 interesting because uh, this is very much, I think, uh, uh, along the lines of what uh, Kevin Williamson is talking about. Uh, people who are um, interested in farming, uh, but uh, but but aren't necessarily uh, farmers themselves, for instance. So one of these earliest uh, planned agricultural communities is uh, called Village Homes. It's in Davis, California. Two hundred and forty five residences on uh, 70 acres. Uh, so you don't actually get a whole lot of land there with your uh, farm. There are 12 acres of shared farmland. There are vineyards. There's an almond orchard and uh, 12 acres of open space. And then uh, on the rest of the property, there are 245 homes with the list price $600,000 for a three-bedroom house. Now, yeah, that's not really, not only is that not small-scale farming, that's not necessarily farming uh, at all. There's Prairie Crossing, which is uh, a, a community in Grays Lake, Illinois, 667-acre site, uh, started in 1987. 
has nearly uh, 400 homes and a number of organic farming operations, including a uh, incubator program for new farmers and a commercial organic farm, which runs a CSA with a dozen pickup locations around suburban Chicago. Uh, a little bit more affordable than buying a house there in uh, Davis, California, $315,000 uh, for a three-bedroom house. Modern Farmer also says uh, there's a, a, a place in Chattahoochee Hills, Georgia, uh, that's about uh, 12 years old now, 1,200 homes on 1,000 acres. So, again, less than an acre per home, uh, $569,000 for a three-bedroom house. Yeah. How is this a planned agricultural community? Well, apparently there in uh, Chattahoochee Hills, you've got a 25-acre uh, a organic farm. Then you've got 700 acres of preserved forest and then I guess on the other 275 acres, you've got 1,200 homes, which doesn't sound very uh, agricultural to me. Now, it might sound like a, a great little small town. Uh, the uh, Modern Farmer magazine says uh, housing there is clustered, minimizing land disturbance from construction. There's a man-made wetland for wastewater treatment and a farm that offers CSA shares. Though hired hands run the farm, volunteer hours give residents the opportunity to be more hands-on the opportunity but but you don't have to you can just watch other people farm too uh they also mentioned uh, uh willows ford which is about 30 miles northwest of washington dc from uh, 2011 uh at willows ford you ready for this uh homes start at around six hundred thousand dollars yeah modern farmer says um such prices raise issues of class and privilege and it's easy to be cynical about basic rural activities, raising food presented as high-end amenities. But farm-centric developments do protect agricultural land and open space, uh, most practice organic methods, and a vegetable garden is certainly better than a golf course. Who, who, who says? I, I, I just, I'm just out of curiosity. Who says? I suppose uh, not many golfers would say that. I suppose a lot of gardeners would say that a vegetable garden is better than a golf course. I would say that a vegetable garden is a lot smaller than your typical golf course. I don't see why you could have you couldn't have both. Heck, you could have a garden over by the uh, putting green. Uh, Modern Farmer says the trend may have veered away from true communal living. Uh, then again, privacy has its benefits. Yeah, I, I, look, you've got uh, 1,200 homes sitting on 1,000. Actually, you've got 1,200 homes sitting on 225 acres. Um, you don't have a lot of privacy. You don't, you don't, you know, that doesn't sound very rural to me. So I get what Kevin was saying. Somebody uh, had, uh, had had tweeted at Kevin after he uh, made his comments about, you know, uh, small-scale farmers, in his opinion, were uh, deluding themselves. It wasn't a, a successful uh, uh, way to, uh, to, to, to run our uh, agricultural sector. Uh, and somebody said, well, what about, what about Cam? He's got, uh, he's got his 40 acres. And I said, well, at this point, I'm the glorified gardener, right? Because at this point, I'm not, I'm not selling anything. Uh, I'm not out there at the farmer's market. I'm not generating an income. This is, uh, right now, to raise food for our family. Uh, we tried. We thought, you know, hey, that last year, that was going to be the year we got into the farmer's market. We were going to specialize in uh, little tomatoes. Uh, no, it wasn't the year that we uh, got into the farmer's market. It wasn't the year that we uh, specialized in the uh, little heirloom tomatoes. Maybe it'll be this year. I doubt it. We're actually kind of scaling down. Uh, this year because we didn't have the time to, uh, to, to, to do everything that needed to be done. Uh, you know, here's the thing. To be a farmer is really a full-time job. Now, there are a lot of farmers out there who have off-farm income. 
That means they're working two jobs uh, if they're if they're doing this successfully. Uh, it is not something that you can do uh, for a couple of hours on the weekend uh, when you have time and then say, oh, I'm a farmer. It is a full-time job. Uh, maybe one of the most successful uh, small-scale farming operations that I've seen and that's around uh, is in Virginia, Joel Salatin with Polyface Farms up near uh, Stanton, Virginia. He's got about 400 acres, uh, and uh, he does uh, well over a million dollars a year in uh, uh, sales. And that's that's great. That is successful. Uh, I think Joel would admit, you know, he's got some things that are uh, uh, kind of baked into his equation that make it a little bit easier to do so. This is a family farm. He didn't buy the land. He's not paying a mortgage on the land. Uh, this was the, uh, the the place where he grew up. And he and his family uh, improved this land. His dad bought the land. It was in pretty poor shape. And then it was a uh, a, a years-long process that still continues to improve uh, that land to fill in uh, a lot of the uh, the ravines and the uh, the runoff and to to make it a uh, a farm where uh, he can do all of the things that he does there on a polyface farm and and there aren't that many uh, polyface farm uh, uh, type of farms uh, out there uh, around the country not compared to uh, you know quote unquote big ag so Kevin definitely has a point. I mean, he really does. Uh, this this idea that uh, that we could be a nation of small scale farmers, um, it, it is, I think, rather utopian. There are uh, there are a lot of reasons why not just agriculture, but uh, but but business in general uh, has become bigger, right? And the the smaller independents uh, in any industry that you look at have become harder to find and harder to come by. Uh, and there are, again, there are reasons for this. And that's not to say that we won't see uh, small-scale farming become more successful in the future as uh, the small-scale farmers learn to adapt. One of the biggest challenges right now is finding a market uh, for your product. And in southwestern Virginia, around the Roanoke area, you've actually got sort of the, the 21st century uh, farmers co-op where you have uh, a, a pretty sizable number of small farms that are uh, joining together, selling their produce uh, under a one banner uh, to uh, to restaurants and to uh, farmers markets. I think they've got about a dozen farms that are uh, involved in this now. That seems to be a model that uh, that, that might work. Uh, striking out on your own, trying to find the uh, the customer base that will either show up to your farm stand uh, there on your property, or or uh, develop that customer base that will go to the farmers market while you're paying the uh, the the the, uh, the fees to get into that farmers market. Uh, you know that that model seems to be pretty difficult. But the one thing that I will say about these planned agricultural communities that that aren't really what we think of as as farms. Uh, where you've got people who are, you know, doing the uh, the additional work. There's a there's a uh, an apartment complex going up on Long Island that's actually hiring for a, a farm manager right now because they want to have in the central courtyard of these uh, apartments they want to have a, a a small farm and they want to hire somebody to run it. You're going to make uh, oh it's not on Long Island it's on Staten Island. You're going to make uh, somewhere between fifteen and twenty five thousand dollars a year, which is not a lot of money uh, to live on in the. Uh, the five boroughs in the New York City area. But they say that you also get a, a free apartment while you're the farm manager. So uh, so you get a little bit of a, a subsidy there. So maybe that rises to, uh, you know, maybe uh, $30,000 or $45,000 a year. Still not a heck of a lot of money, and it's not your land. You're, a, you're an employee, and you're going to get booted off. But what all of this shows to me is that there is a desire out there 
uh, for something other than living in a big steel box in uh, Midtown Manhattan or a uh, skyscraper in Chicago. Now, look, if that's what floats your boat, that's great. But it should be recognized that even though we are an increasingly uh, urban society, there are fewer and fewer Americans who are living uh, in the rural areas. Uh, Actually, what we are becoming is a suburban society. Uh, Most uh, Americans uh, want to live in the suburbs, not necessarily the inner core uh, or the uh, or or the rural parts of America. But there is still a substantial uh, portion of America that does want that. They they want the small town experience or they want the uh, the the rural life where they can uh, look out their front door and they don't see a neighbor around. Uh, when we were doing the uh, book Heavy Lifting, uh, Jim Garrity and I were writing this book. I was uh, looking at some of these figures because we had a little, I had a little chapter on uh, tiny houses and uh, and why you shouldn't aspire to live in a tiny house. You should aspire for for more than this. And I was looking at these uh, surveys of millennials and where they wanted to live. And as it turns out, most millennials that were surveyed anyway didn't want to live in. Uh, uh, Brooklyn, New York. They didn't want to live in uh, uh, Portland, Oregon. Most of them wanted to live uh, in the suburbs. Only about one in 10 said they really wanted to live in a, uh, an urban center. And about one in four said that they wanted to live in the country. The trick right now, I think, is how to make those desires viable. Uh, for a, uh, a bigger part of the American population. All right, we're going to take a, a quick time out. When we come back, we've got uh, some emails to get to. I actually just heard from Missy as we were uh, uh, talking here and have some more bad news from the farm. So uh, we'll get to that after a quick time out as well. Stick around. There's more 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network coming up right after this. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Opelka with Michael Pelka. And when he said the, that night of the of the horrible explosion and crash that those seven souls had slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God, it just gut punched all of us. Powerful stuff. It reminds you of just what Reagan had as an orator. Pure Opelka. Saturdays, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool. Cam Edwards, your host here from the Blaze Radio Network. Don't forget to uh, tune in to NRA News Cam and Company each and every weekday live, 2 p.m. Eastern on NRANews.com and midnight Eastern. 9 Pacific on Sirius X and Patriot 125, also on demand all the time at iHeartRadio. And we do have the new NRA News Roku channel. So if you've got your Roku box, not only can you watch NRA News Cam and Company, whatever you want, but you can also watch a lot of fantastic programming, additional programming from uh, NRA News. Uh, uh, my colleague Jenny Simone, her special reports, uh, uh, the uh, Life of Duty uh, uh, stories and uh, all kinds of great uh, programming there on the uh, Roku channel. I mentioned uh, that I just heard from Miss E with uh, some unfortunately bad news. She uh, texted me this morning saying the girl uh, didn't make it to the, uh, the little goat. She says, I, I don't think the boy is going to live either. Uh, apparently, mom is not taking care of her kid. Uh, and that means that uh, Miss E is going to be doing a lot more work uh, trying to bottle feed the uh, the little buckling 
uh, over the next couple of weeks. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be rough. I think this is the the not so fun part of um, you know actually raising animals because sometimes uh, those animals those those cute little adorable goat babies that we all like to watch on Twitter sometimes they don't make it and uh, and it sucks to have to deal with that. But uh, it is one of those things that you do have to deal with. It doesn't uh, necessarily get any easier. Uh, at least it hasn't in the three years that, uh, that we've been raising goats. But um, it is something that uh, that you learn to deal with, I think. So we will uh, give you an update next week on the, uh, the goats that are still uh, with us there on the uh, 40 acres. I do want to get to some uh, additional emails, though. I heard from uh, Trent a couple of days ago. He says, I missed a few episodes around the holidays. And with a transition work situation, things have been in flux. But the last episode, there was an email talking about the affairs changing, and it hit a nerve with me. I had to write. Trent says, I'm a relatively uh, or a young guy for this kind of talk, I'm almost only 33. I'm curmudgeonly beyond my years, and I think most would qualify me as an old soul, as it were. I would, I would say so, Trent. Uh, Trent says, growing up in northeast Indiana, I was a 10-year member of 4-H. I showed swine and horses, did some photography. I was active in the club. Whitley County, where I exhibited, was, in my estimation, the last real 4-H fair for quite some miles, as it was only a 4-H fair. There was no midway, no carnival games, no riffraff from who knows where, guessing your weight. Fair week was the pinnacle of summer life. Starting about age 10 or 11, you were dropped off to tend to your animals in the morning, and your parents went to work, trusting you to band together with your friends for the day. Everyone was in 4-H. At least all of us rural kids. The town kids, meh. The commercial building, Trent says, was full of local vendors flogging their wares. The hill was a museum of tractors and engines from the last century, shiny and new every summer to show off with the family name proudly displayed. And the 4-H center was full up on photography displays, fashion exhibits, and ribbon-winning pies. Some of Trent's most vivid and impactful memories, he says, were born of that week and the end of every July. He says, I'm not ashamed to admit that uh, writing this is a bit emotional, remembering those simpler times. He says to return now causes a grimace every summer. The barns, once filled to capacity, are half empty. The fun that we kids had, once on prominent display, is hard to find. The pieces are all there. The commercial building's unchanged. The tractors glistening on the hill are still there. But the heart, that which 4-H pledges to greater loyalty, is missing. Maybe it isn't cool to show swine anymore. Maybe kids just can't pull themselves away from twinsta-face snapscope long enough to raise chickens. But that's no excuse. Trent says kids can never be trusted to make those decisions. That even here, in what my heart still tells me is a hamlet of middle American ideals and values, something once so revered as the 4-H fair can fall so far, so fast, it makes my heart hurt. Trent says it's a lot to share, but I was moved to send it. It's why I enjoy the podcast so much, really. It's a weekly confirmation that I'm not the only one holding on to something as simple as backyard chickens or feeder pigs. Thank you for that. Well, Trent, thank you. And, you know, I think that you're right. Um... It's not necessarily up to the uh, the kids to make these decisions. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the uh, the parent who decides that when their kid is 18 months old, they're going to uh, turn them into the world's greatest ex, right? Um, because when you're 18 months old, you also don't have that choice. Uh, I, I, I do believe in letting kids be kids, but I also believe that kids need guidance. Um, you, you know, your job as a parent isn't to just sit back and uh, let uh, adulthood come to your kid, right? You're going to raise a semi-feral child that way. You you do have to provide some guidance. And and part of that guidance in this day and age is saying that there's something better than the Twinsta scope uh, uh, and the Xbox or the PlayStation. There's something better than just sitting on the couch, uh, watching TV, or, or even reading a book, right? Reading certainly has its place, but... Uh, 
Uh, but 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 we've got to get our kids uh, beyond the electronics. One of my favorite books, Trent, uh, from the last few years is a book called You Are Not a Gadget. Uh, and it's written by a guy named uh, Jaron Lanier, who was uh, one of the uh, pioneers in the 70s and 80s of uh, uh, electronics. Uh, he was actually one of the guys who, who came up with the, uh, the with MIDI uh, programming, the, uh, the music programming. And a few years ago, he wrote this book called You Are Not a Gadget. He's got a, 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 sort, a semi-sort of sequel to this, but it's, it's basically his manifesto uh, from a guy who is very technocentric, that you cannot be defined uh, by the devices that you use and that we are in danger of becoming defined by the devices that we use, that we are more than the sum of our gadgets. We are more than our smartphone. We are more than our laptop. We are more than these things. And as a matter of fact, when we become so reliant on these things, we lose something of ourselves. So whether it's hunting or raising uh, sheep or cows or, or goats in the uh, 4-H program or going for a walk outside with mom or dad on a, a weekend, we have to do our part uh, to, to help that younger generation understand that as, as cool as the graphics are on that PlayStation, they're not as cool as the view that you can find uh, not far from your house in the real world. You know, one of the things that I've noticed with uh, with my own kids in, in video games is that with the open world games, uh, and maybe the first one, uh, probably the first open world games, right, were, were, were sort of the Grand Theft Auto games, which my kids never uh, played. But um, the, the Fallout games or Skyrim uh, was probably the one that, uh, that my kids really latched onto. And they would sit, if I let them, in front of that TV for six hours just walking around, exploring stuff virtually, exploring a world that somebody else had designed, right? As opposed to getting out and exploring the real world. Now, part of that is parents may think it's safer, for kids to uh, to sit on the couch and explore that virtual world rather than explore the real world around them, but but what you described, Trent, growing up, parents dropping off their kids at the uh, at the county fairgrounds, uh, you know, every, every morning and picking them up uh, eight hours later, you were kind of on your own. Now there might have been other adults to to keep a, a general eye on the kids, but uh, you also knew that, uh, that that you had some responsibilities. You knew how you had to act so that you didn't get in trouble when your parents showed up. But you also knew part of this was pushing those boundaries and exploring the world around you and maybe going a little bit farther than you were supposed to go, than your parents wanted you to go. Because you knew you'd be coming back, right? I'm not sure that we do that anymore. Uh, again, I think for so many parents, it is just so much easier. It's simpler to just let the kids veg out. Uh, to uh, you know, and you can even say, "Well, I'm monitoring what they're doing. I'm, I'm keeping an eye on what they're doing." Okay, but what are they actually doing? And, and the answer is not much, right? I'm not saying you know, scrap the Xbox, scrap the uh, PlayStation Four, throw them all away, and uh, become the uh, like the Amish. Uh, you know, turn off your electricity and uh, uh, don't drive a car. But I am saying, be aware of those things that. Uh, uh, that we had when we were younger, because there's no reason why our kids can't have those things today. We just have to teach them. We have to show them that these things are still valuable. That is cool uh, and uh, amazing as lifelike 
uh, as the graphics are, uh, whether it's a video game or uh, the latest Hollywood blockbuster, these are still simulations of the real world. And the real world is still a much better place. So, Trent, thank you for writing in. I, I really appreciate that email. Uh, Dennis also wrote in as well. He said, uh, uh, as I said in my last email last week, I was about 10 episodes in. I, I only recently discovered the podcast, and I've been binge listening to try to catch up to the most recent ones. He says, I think I'm around 30 or so in. Wow, Dennis. He says, I was listening to you and Missy lament the lack of potatoes back in October. I thought I would share how we grew them when I was a kid. We had about an acre of land, half wooded, and we would have a small garden every summer. A couple of rows of corn, green beans, peas, cucumbers, and tomatoes. And then off to the side, there was a stack of old tractor tires filled with dirt. That's where we grew our potatoes. As the plants grew and needed to be covered with dirt, we would throw on another tire and then fill it with dirt and repeat as needed. And then when time came to harvest, we'd pull off the tires one at a time and just kind of brush away the dirt instead of having to dig down to get the potatoes. Pulling off the tires can be a bit hard, and you may need to dig out some of the dirt around the edges so you can lift them off. If you don't have any old tractor tires, I guess just about any tire could work for this, but your potatoes won't have as much room to grow in the smaller tires. Uh, Dennis, by the way, says, I'm going to try to make it out to the outdoor show over in Harrisburg uh, this week, probably on Saturday. Uh, hopefully I will see you there, Dennis. And uh, pop over to see you guys this time as my boys, ages uh, two and a half and four years old, were behaving in such a way that they could not remain in public. So we uh, cut our visit short this past Sunday and didn't have a chance to get around the whole show. Well, I'm sorry that I missed you on Sunday, Dennis. I hope that I get to see you on Saturday. I do understand when the uh, kids are that age, they're, you know, the Great American Outdoor Show is a very family-friendly place. The aisles are wide. Uh, it is, uh, it, it's crowded, and you know, you're going to be moseying around, uh, particularly on the other weekends. And uh, it might not be for uh, for for every kid uh, or, you know, they might get they, they might they might reach their limit uh, a little bit uh, earlier than uh, than you would like. I, I, I totally get it. Uh, if you do come see us, Dennis, this weekend, we are actually going to be set up. I don't know if you found us uh, this past weekend, but we are set up right next to the Eddie Eagle uh, gun safety booth and uh, uh, not far away from the NRA store as well. Uh, right next to Outfitters Hall. We're not in Outfitters Hall, but we are in the hall right next to it. So uh, please come by and see us. Hopefully the uh, the boys will uh, cooperate a little bit better this time, and uh, you can see what you didn't have a chance to see this past weekend. Well, that about does it for this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. Next week, we'll be coming to you from the 40 Acres once again. I'm really looking forward to that. Looking forward to uh, getting back to Harrisburg and the Great American Outdoor Show. But I'm also looking forward to uh, getting home and spending some time with my kids and uh, my wife and all of the critters there as well. So have a fantastic week. Until we talk again, be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot. And we'll see you here soon on another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.